I am here with David Frum. David, thanks for joining me again. What a pleasure to be back. So you have a new book. You have been hammering Trump hard, and it, it is uh, necessary work. This is, your, is, is this your second book focused on Trump? Yes. I, I've written a, quite a few books, but I wrote a book that came out 2018 called Trumpocracy, which was a study of Trump's power. And this book is called Trumpocalypse, and it's a study of the Trump finale and what comes after. Yeah, well, it's great to have you on to talk about this, because as you know, and everyone will know, we are under the shadow of a presidential election that seems especially consequential. I guess whatever your view of reality here, you must think this election will matter, unless you're a nihilist, or maybe especially if you're a nihilist. If you want to tear everything down, (laughs) there is a good way to do it by voting wrongly here. The problem I keep failing to adequately confront every time I talk about Trump, and I think you, you know I do that vehemently, although now sparingly, is that it does seem somewhat hopeless to convince anyone of anything. I'm, I'm painfully aware of how boring it is to simply sing to the choir, and I, I want to do some good in the world here with conversations of this kind. I, w- I want to convince people to see Trump as we do, because I think we have an accurate view of him, and it matters to understand what has happened here and what, what it would mean to double down on this error. What can we say at the beginning here to try to inoculate our listeners against some ways of misunderstanding the conversation? I mean, there will be an assumption on the part of many that this is a, a partisan bias where we will be expressing against Trump. What can you say to that point? Let me say, I I have spent my life, and it's now a lengthening life, in the conservative and in the Republican Party. As a teenager, I was supported Ford over Carter in 1976. I, the first time I was ever involved in an American election, I'm originally from Canada, was in 1980 when I knocked on doors for Ronald Reagan in the town, my college town. I served in the George W. Bush White House. I've been involved with conservative parties in Canada and Great Britain. And this, this is my world. So I'm coming from inside this world. For me, the theme of the Trump years has been the discovery, and I think this is so true for everyone who thinks about politics. We all have a lot of commitments in our lives, and they're often potentially in conflict, but we don't, we're not forced to confront that. And then comes a moment we say, well, I believe this, and I believe that, and I have to choose. So maybe the way to start talking about this in a way that's useful, as you recommend, it's not to talk about what we don't like, but to talk about what we do. What, what do we cherish? Why, why are we here? So let me talk about what, what is important to me, and I, I hope that that will resonate with some of the people who are on the fence that you describe. I grew up in the Cold War. I grew up, as I mentioned, in Canada, under the, under the shield of that mighty American system of global defense that protected all of us. My family's Jewish. I'm Jewish. My, on my father's side, particularly, we lost the vast majority of our family to the Nazi Holocaust. We understand intimately what a world that is not, where, where justice isn't safeguarded by power, how justice in a world not safeguarded by power, justice becomes a victim. I was formed by the extraordinary explosion of global prosperity in the 1970s and 1980s through free trade and free interchange. The happiest moment of my political life was that, that moment in 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down and went from South Korea and Chile and South Africa and, and Eastern and Central Europe, it seemed like we were moving the whole planet 
to a world, a place of greater security and prosperity. And I think that altogether adds up to the most stupendous human political achievement of all time. Now, everything has costs. Things got, it didn't serve everyone equally well. And as that development advanced, it got bumpy. And we went through the 9-11 crisis and the war in Iraq, which I was a supporter of, and you know, that alienated so many people. And then the global financial crisis. And then the strains and stresses of mass migration and unequal prosperity. And so it's not crazy that there was a reaction to that. And Donald Trump positioned himself at the head of that parade. And I said, I get that in 2016. I spent a lot of time in the 2000s warning Republicans that their message was not responsive to where Americans were, where even their voters were. But Trump now is putting at jeopardy everything I cherish, down to such basics as the integrity and competence of the U.S. government. Yeah, you know, an analogy comes to mind which would characterize my view of that jeopardy and, and also how a criticism of Trump need not entail any partisanship. Just to cut through the partisanship algebra pretty quickly, as you did, you, you are a Republican or have been a Republican. So, you know, obviously your partisanship, if anything, runs the other way. I have never voted Republican, but there's absolutely nothing. I have said or will say about Trump that would apply to someone like Mitt Romney or John McCain or any other normal Republican. So again, it's just, it's not coming from a partisan place in me at all. And an analogy occurs to me that captures this and some of the risk you just cited. I mean, just imagine you're on an airplane cruising at 30,000 feet and at some point near the end of the flight, you see the pilot come stumbling out of the cockpit, and he appears just visibly drunk or insane. You know, let's say he gropes one of the flight attendants. He gets on the PA system, and he begins bragging about how rich he is, and maybe he starts castigating the passengers for having insulted him. You know, he might say, if you want me to land this plane, you have to be nicer to me. Right? I mean, something completely out of keeping with the role and responsibility he has to you know, safeguard the lives of people on that plane. Then he'll, you know, just to continue this analogy, he could launch into a conspiracy theory about how the airline is really run by a shadow group of maintenance workers who have been undermining him, right? And they're, he thinks they've been monkeying with the instruments in the cockpit. And... He could fire the co-pilot. He could send him to the back of the plane and, say, and tell him not to move, right? And he could do a dozen other things like that in the span of an hour that prove beyond any possibility of doubt that this isn't a normal situation, right? He's not a normal pilot. And now, when it comes time to land this plane, the danger of something going wrong has been horribly magnified. And you are worried about this, quite reasonably so. And you're appalled to find that control over so many lives, yours among them, has been given to somebody who is quite obviously unfit for the job, monstrously unfit for the job. And now you find yourself worrying about this out loud. And notice that there are people on the plane who are inspired by this pilot's antics and goading him on, right? And, you know, he's now threatening to punch some old woman in the face and people are, you know, yelling he should do it, right? 
And then people are turning to you as you begin to worry about this out loud, and they're, they're claiming that you have pilot derangement syndrome, and that you should just stop whining and enjoy the flight, and that Captain Trump is, is making flying great again, right? So this is your situation. You're worried about obvious incompetence and distraction from the task at hand, and coming at a moment where everyone can least afford it, right? I mean, just we're in the middle of a global pandemic and a global economic emergency, right? Now, the question is, and I'm, I'm posing this to our listeners, how much of your concern about not dying in a plane crash is due to political partisanship? Just, it is obvious that that's not even a variable, right? And that, you know, you may disagree with with me and David here, right, in our view of Trump and the situation and the importance of institutions and political norms, and I mean, we'll get into that, but the conversation we're about to have is coming from a place of concern about our society being able to respond intelligently to real risks. And again, it is our view that we're being led by somebody who is obviously a fraud and a con man and an incompetent and a morbidly self-interested person. And that has been obvious from day one, but it's becoming completely untenable to deny that fact, even for the span of a minute here. So with that you know, long preamble, David, you've described, you describe in your book, Trumpism, you know, the, the, i.e. support for the president and the kind of social movement that has kept him rather impervious to the kinds of criticisms we will launch here. You've described it as an affinity fraud. Yeah. Well, what do you mean by that? I mean that people who study organized crime or white-collar crime will note that fraudsters often take advantage of people who are in some way uh, similar to them and sympathetic to them. So Bernie Madoff, the great you know, Ponzi scheme on Wall Street, he stole from people like Elie Wiesel, a fellow, people who are mm -hmm. involved in, in fellow Jews, people involved in collective Jewish life, and, and Madoff, with his stealing, would often be very generous to Jewish institutions. And when you look at victims, overwhelmingly and portionally Jewish, and what you will find often with other kinds of schemes like that, that, that people prey on their own. They create an affinity, and they take advantage of that. And that is something that Donald Trump has done with many conservative-minded Americans, who would normally, you know, when you think about the Republican Party, I mean, historically, Republican Party famously, you know, what's the joke? Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. So it's, it's a very orderly political party. It chooses people with long histories in the party. You sort of rise through the machine. Typically, this never among Democrats, they are always choosing outsiders. You know, governors of Arkansas in their 40s, a guy who makes it from the Illinois State Senate to the U.S. Senate and has been there for a couple of years, and you know, romantic outsiders. The Republicans pick. Well, let's take the guy who was vice president last time. And make him our nominee this time. You bump your way up. It's like Procter and Gamble in 1953. And right. all of that orderliness, that, that quest for predictability. I mean, Donald Trump is none of those things, but he benefits. I want to say something about the, the title of this book, and it's relevant to what you just asked. So most of us use the word apocalypse to mean, you know, locusts and famine and hornets and, and disasters of all kinds. And we are certainly suffering through those, this global pandemic and, and this terrible economic shock. But literally, an apocalypse means an unveiling, a revelation. It comes from Greek words that mean to, to lit, take the cloth off of something. And when 
Jewish and early Christian writers began to use that the idea of the apocalypse in their right. They were they were revealing the future. Now, the future they chose to re- reveal was a pretty horrifying one. But but it was it was horror that wasn't if horror for its own sake that was leading to the end of days. Right. And so the Trumpocalypse that I want to write about is one that shows us something about who we are and and where we go. As you say, I mean there is a substantial minority in this country, maybe a little less than it was three months ago, that that sticks with Trump, that sees something in him that speaks to them, and. I, I think that loyalty is is a danger, not just immediately, but in the long term to a lot of institutions that we should all cherish. And what I wanted to write about was the nature of that danger. And then how do we prevent that kind of disaffection from being a threat to the country in the future? Not how do we brainwash people or convert them, but how do we make the disappointments that are maybe inevitable in modern life less dangerous to the political system that upholds modern life? Yeah, well, let's talk about that affinity. And I mean, maybe we're talking about 30% of Americans. I mean, there seems to be a core that now has outside political influence because they're so, they seem to be so unpersuadable, which is to say unmovable based on, you know, the 10,000 pieces of information that should have pried them loose from their affinity to Trump. What do you think the organizing principles are there? I mean, it's clearly not racism as often alleged by the far left. I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that there aren't racists who support Trump. In fact, I would imagine almost every racist does. But I find it very hard to believe that's the organizing principle. I mean, one thing that is clearly happening, and it's even creating a, a larger footprint in our society than support for Trump, is a distrust for institutions. By institutions, we're talking about the press. We're talking about normal arms of government that heretofore seemed important, like the State Department. We're talking about science and uh, scientists attempting to communicate it. How do you view the relationship between institutions and the rest of society right now? This is a, a problem that I described in a book I wrote a long time ago as the man in the white lab coat issue. So if, if you watch an American movie made between like the end of World War II and the end of the 1970s, whenever there's a man in a white lab coat, he's there to explain how the plot is going to set in motion. He's going to explain how you can shrink a submarine so it's small enough to go inside the bloodstream. Mm. He's going to explain how time travel works. He's going to give you like the, the device that'll save James Bond's life in the last act. Sometime around 1978, 79, whenever you see a man in a white lab coat, he's got some moronic idea that's going to get us all killed. Let's clone dinosaurs. <laughs> and, the, and the last time we see him, he's disappearing down the throat of the dinosaur. Although in his defense, <laughs> I, I'm in support of cloning some dinosaurs <laughs> just for the fun of it. So, um, But he, so yes, we, we, we've been through that shock. And, and it's become especially intense recently. And I, I wrote about this in my first book about, about the Trump presidency. I, I'm trying to think, starting in about 1998, whenever people we socialized with, the people we went to school with, our type of people, whenever they had a brainwave, let's sell stock in a, in a pet food company that moves pet food by air. Let's, you know, do the Iraq war. Let's have, let's uh, securitize home mortgages. Every one of those brainwaves turned out to be an absolute calamity for most of the people around them. Hmm. So a, a lot of the trust that we would like to see in our institutions was squandered, a mistake. And people came by their distrust honestly. And Donald Trump used that. Hmm. 
not that he's a trustworthy person at all. He's the world's least trustworthy person, but he, he, has a, he had a shrewd eye for people's vulnerabilities. So one of the things that I am in this new book talking about is how do you, how do we regain that trust? And how do we make practical changes in a way that stabilize democratic societies? And not just the states, because we need to see Trump in a more global context. But, and a, a, little, a, a lot of the, the way forward, you know, human life is tragically short. But the fact is people have been living longer and longer. And as they live longer, they are carrying forward quarrels from half a century ago into the present. I mean, Newt Gingrich is still talking about Woodstock. He's still mad about it all, all these years later. And, and maybe Woodstock was a good idea. Maybe it was a bad idea. It looks like the one guy who didn't get invited and, uh, yeah. and held it against them. Right, right. The, the Vietnam War. They're still arguing about that. All, you know, this half century, now more than half century later. And Donald Trump uses all of these cues from like the Nixon campaign of 1968. And it's yesterday's world. And we need to build a politics for tomorrow's world. And, so, and, and that means sometimes that some of the things that you talk about on the, that seem to be so-called left-wing issues, like making healthcare more universal, can only be effectively executed in conjunction with things that would be considered right-wing issues, which is having some kind of restraint on immigration. Hmm. That a lot of our, the right, a lot of the solutions to problems like climate change are going to involve ideas that actually look right-wing, like pricing and like more use of nuclear power. And we are going to need a new generation of political leadership that is not stuck in categories left over from when there were three cable, three channels on TV. Yeah, that's an important point. We've been noticing this in many ways that the old way of talking about left and right politically and the boxes that one needs to check to be a member in, in good standing as you move left or right of center, that seems to have been getting scrambled in a variety of ways. and. It just makes it difficult to talk about what's happening and, and predict how people will respond to news events, to things. I mean, I, I mean, Trump himself is an existence proof that politics as we knew it prior to 2016 no longer makes any sense. I mean, the idea that the Christian right is behind this guy as though he were some apotheosis of their values, it's a reductio ad absurdum of... Yeah. You know, everything they pretend is their values, and yet it is you know, visibly manifest. So it's a very strange time to even categorize political thought. One of the um, things that defined politics when a generation ago, 30, in the 1990s, was the United States was an exception to the rule that as societies became technologically developed, became wealthier, they became more secular. And so when you, when you looked at social science from 1995, the United States looked like a real, I mean, it's completely different from Britain or Germany or the Netherlands or Australia or even Canada, all of which were rapidly secularizing, and the United States just wasn't. And then, beginning about 2002, the United States suddenly, bang, caught up. And the United States has been, and I talk about this, a lot about this in Trump Apocalypse, about the, the loss of religious affinity that has happened in the past decade and a half. And how much of this is about people under 30 simply not identifying with parental religion. And this may be a reaction. I mean, there's a, it raises the question, how religious was America ever, really? Because there's always a big, if you ask questions in polls, like, do you believe in God? Do you believe in an afterlife? You'd get, you used to get 70, 80, 90%. But if you actually counted the number of people sitting in a church on a Sunday morning, it in no way accorded. Even if you asked, were you in church on Sunday morning? <laughs> and then counted the people who were in church on Sunday morning, those two numbers didn't add up. Right. 
but there were there, there were a lot of people who were Christian identified, religiously identified, but may, it may not have been central to their life. And then the assertiveness of political religion since since in the 21st century, uh, we talked before about commitments come into contra- a con- contradiction. A lot of people thought, yeah, I'm, I'm a Methodist. I don't go that often, but I, I, you know, I think they're doing good work. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a Methodist. Then they suddenly confront, wait, wait a minute. I'm, I see Derry Falwell Jr. on TV. I'm not that. That's what it is. I'm that I am not. And so you are seeing the secularizing society. And I think one of the reasons that the so-called Christian right has been so committed to Trump is because they are reckoning with this de-Christianizing among their own followers. And in fact, they are moving from something that was a religious movement in a way to something that is now purely a cultural movement Mm. where you no longer can tell the difference in what is Christian here and what is Southern or what is rural. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Or what is Christian and what is an animus against so-called elitism, right? Or against the coasts or, you know, against the libtards in their big cities who are too woke and too, in the the context of the current pandemic, you know, terrified to get out there and get this happy virus. So how does a a mask become a symbol of of cultural war? There have been some very startling images broadcast us, you know, at least on, on social media of, again, and it's just amazing that the perception of this global health crisis and, and economic crisis has been so politicized. But two images have jumped out to me of, in recent weeks. One is just the confrontation between pandemic protesters, that is people protesting against lockdown, and healthcare workers, right? So they're literally shrieking epithets at frontline healthcare workers who are in their scrubs and masks. And then there was another video that went pretty viral. You might have seen this of a local news reporter covering a protest. I think it was in New York, New Jersey or New York. And just the level of hatred being expressed by otherwise normal people toward a, a random member of the press was really alarming. Again, you know, it could be something manipulative about how this was set up, but it seemed to be a member of a, of, you know, a local news affiliate walking the sidewalk among, this wasn't a Klan rally. I mean, this was you know, just you know, ordinary people protesting the lockdown, but when they saw that a member of the press was among them, it was just awful the degree to which they were visibly living in an information space where, you know, the pandemic was essentially a hoax. It was just a, it was an attempt to kind of engineer a, an informational coup against the president, right? This is all about discrediting Trump. This is why people are pretending this is something other than the flu. So this is where we are. I guess let's start with, we have to talk about Trump and the election and the reasons for our concerns, but it's very hard to talk about anything if we can't find a shared space of facts and you know vetting of information whereby we can talk about what has happened on a Thursday on Earth. What do we do with respect to the degree to which the press is now reviled? you know, especially in Trumpistan. How does the press get its act together? And how, how does the press even cover Trump critically, obviously, without discrediting itself? You know, every moment it attempts to shine a light on each one of the president's innumerable missteps. 
Well, th- this is one of the ways, and I talk about this in Trumpocalypse, but how we have to bring ourselves into our present time. When people of a certain age, certainly my contemporaries, when we talk about the press, we mean the New York Times, we mean the CBS Evening News, we mean CNN, we mean institutions like that, that are self-consciously press organizations, that are funded by uh, advertising and reader pay, and that have a legacy that stretches back in time. So how do most information, Americans get their information? Facebook, number one. YouTube, number two. You know, the New York Times is maybe in the top five list because it is a provider, uh, as a secondhand provider of content to those streams, Reddit. And the Americans who are most likely to say, I don't trust the media, in fact, are the people who are most reliant on media. They don't read a book. They're not, you know, interview, they're not interviewing scientists. They are following what they see on Facebook. And Facebook is media. Even though Facebook is not creating the content, it is certainly making decisions maybe robotically, but it's making decisions about the content you get. So we need to, have a, we need to bring our content, concepts of the world into alignment with the world we live in. And we live in a world in which the media are very trusted, dangerously so, and in which they are losing their, their own ability to assess the quality of what they are providing, where they truly are acting like, like mediums, like, like con- connectors between one thing and another. So that, I think one of the, problem here is not a loss of trust of media. The problem is that we have media that no longer have a, see it as their job to evaluate the truthfulness of what it is that they provide. So that is an mm. internal problem. In the, but whenever, so I always say, whenever you talk about the media, don't use generality. Say, do you mean the New York Times? And that's one set of issues. Do you mean CNN? And there, that's another set of issues. Or do you mean Facebook and Fox News? Because that's something else. And if you have a concept of media that excludes the most important media <laughs> companies in the country, it's not a very good concept. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, they are clearly distinct categories because you take Facebook and and Twitter and, and the rest of social media. These are platforms which are trying to disavow any responsibility as publishers, and it's understandable because I, I don't know how you, even with some real breakthroughs in in AI, I don't know how you perfectly vet or really take full editorial responsibility for your content if... I dissent from you, from you a little bit there. Yeah, supposing, go for it. Supposing an entrepreneur invents a company called McDonald's, and he says, you know what? Look, when you, when you used to get your hamburgers from a local store, obviously it was very important that there be some government regulation of whether the meat in the, those burgers was rancid or not. But we're going to serve a billion burgers a day, or you know, a billion a year. There's, there's, we are operating on such a scale that it's just impossible for us to right. verify that the meat in our burgers is not rancid. And that's just our business model. Our business model makes it impossible for us to vote for the fact that our meat isn't rancid. And I think a lot of us would say, well, sorry, sorry I'm not here for your business. Your, your, well, your business model is terrible. We don't need this, yeah. this. You shouldn't be in business. If your business model is you can't vouch for the fact that the meat won't make me sick, you shouldn't have that business. Yeah, it's interesting that there, there's been kind of a, a land grab for informational norms which just happened and now we're anchored to a status quo that is very difficult to rethink. So on some level, you're, you're calling into question whether something like Facebook should even be possible, but it's technologically possible. You can link up half the world on a platform and, and allow people to talk to one another and to talk to everyone all at once if things go viral. And Facebook has obviously found a way to monetize that, Twitter less so, but we're asking whether that sort of thing should be allowable on some level. Is this a 
public square that you'd be in, in, to take a the U.S. you know Constitution as a norm here. You'd be violating free speech if you tried to tamp that down. There's like a room in the the mansion of human experience that's just opened up based on a certain technological innovation. You know, in this case, the internet. Or you take another example, which is different but strikes me as as relevantly similar. Like all of this anguish people feel over privacy concerns around the iPhone. You know, should Apple be forced to build an iPhone in a way that it can be unlocked ultimately with a, you know an FBI warrant because you know we know a murder has been recorded on it or have good reason to believe that. Well, there are many privacy purists now who think no, this just you've got strong encryption and this is just math and technology dictating that we should have a now a zone of privacy that you know even if we acknowledge that we ourselves are murderers you know no one can force us to open our iPhones they can demand our DNA but they can't demand access to our FaceTime interactions or our WhatsApp interactions you know on one level that's just totally bizarre that we think that these are are in some way norms that can't be rethought. But again, I'm sympathetic to a default to free speech, and I'm just impressed by how intractable it seems to monitor in real time everything that is hitting Facebook's servers, because any lunatic can post a video right now communicating anything he wants, and that will be one of I don't know. I mean, someone has the numbers here, but let's say one of a billion pieces of content uploaded today on Facebook. It's a needle in a haystack until it isn't. But I guess I mean, a different set of expectations could be invoked once it becomes obvious that this thing is there and causing a problem. Then, then we could demand something to Facebook. But the idea that Facebook can't be in business unless they figure out a way to never produce a poison hamburger with all the hamburgers they're making, it does seem like a deal breaker unless barring some perfect algorithm coming online. Let me give you another example of a, one of these questionable business models. The way politics worked in the United States in the, from the civil rights era till the end of the 20th century was you had these two vast political parties. They're pretty messy assemblages of lots of different kinds of people in lots of different kinds of places. And, they and for that reason, they were, they were not super ideological. And for that reason, they tended to coalesce around, with bare exceptions like a Ronald Reagan figure, pretty moderate people. If they, when they became non-moderate, like Barry Goldwater or George McGovern, they got clobbered. And even a non-moderate like Ronald Reagan learned he had to be a really beguiling, winning, sunny, reassuring person if he was not to frighten people with, with his ideology that was so strong. Mm. That began to change in the 21st century. The parties became much more ideological for reasons that had to do with American life. As they became more ideological, they accelerated with reasons that didn't have a lot to do with American life, but became part of gaming of the system. And that on the Republican side in particular, the Republicans realized they had an ideology that could not command a Democratic majority. In 1985, if you were in that predicament, you'd say, well, I guess we're going to have to change our ideology if we, if we want to enjoy the spoils of office. But by 2015, the attitude was different, which is we don't want the conventional spoils of office like postmasterships and ambassadorships and those things. We actually have a, a, a program here that we are determined to cram through. And we are self-becoming aware we actually can't win in an open competition. So we're going to have to make the competition more closed. And one of the big themes of the book is how the Republican Party 
forced to choose between its ideological commitments and a competitive democracy has been gaming the system more and more aggressively. And it's helped to do that by the way the the movement of Americans from the interior of the country to the coasts Hmm. in a system that makes these ancient boundaries so important. So you can have people, you can have all of California with no more, I mean, if people in Wyoming ever were treated on an equal footing with people in California, they would find themselves, they would feel themselves really ill used. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, so, and, and then you have the system where the money flows from the coast to the interior, but the interior uses the political power. You may remember Senator Mitch McConnell talking about driving states into bankruptcy. What, what that's about is you, bankruptcy is a federal responsibility. When a state defaults on its debt, states have been doing that since the 1830s. But when a state, if a state were ever to go bankrupt, which they can't now do, that would mean the state would submit itself to the oversight of a federal judge, i.e. somebody picked by Mitch McConnell. It, it is an attempt for the parts of the country that are receiving money to leverage the, their ex- excessive power because of constitutional compromises and the way the system has grown up over time to take other people's economic power and use it to their own ends. So I have a series of, of suggestions in the book about how without radical political reform or fantasies like abolishing the Electoral College, you could bring the American federal system more into line with how wealth is produced in the American nation. A last thought on this, and this, you know, 2008 at the Republican Convention, Sarah Palin gave this fantastic acceptance speech. And, and one of the lines mm. written by a friend of mine, he did a great job. And one of the lines she used was, she quoted a piece of writing, and I tell the story of that writing, and she, and she said, we raise good people in our small towns. In the book, I said, just imagine how all hell would break loose if a candidate at a Democratic convention would say, we raise good people on the Upper West Side, Manhattan. We raise good people in Hollywood. Mm. (laughs) Perhaps not quite as bad as the Upper East Side, but But, close. But who's paying the bills around here, folks? (laughs) Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the degree to which the cities and coasts subsidize the heartland is, is an interesting asymmetry there. And, and as you say, the political leverage based on representation, at least in the Senate, is running the other way. Why do you say the, abolishing the Electoral College is just a pipe dream? Because it, it's, it's in the Constitution. You'd need to do a constitutional amendment to, to do away with it. So I, I'm focused very much in Trumpocalypse on things that you could do with ordinary votes of Congress real fast. Not with an idea of making the system perfectly representative, but avoiding its most terrible injustices, many of which were at the state level, where in, in states, and not just southern states, but in Wisconsin, that the party that holds the majority in the over, the nearly a two-thirds majority in the Wisconsin state legislature, how, Assembly and Senate, actually when few, the Republicans got, now have about 66 of ni- or 64 of 99 seats in the Wisconsin legislature, which they won with fewer votes than the Democrats won in, 20, in 2018. And that is, is happening because the federal courts, which used to, from the civil rights era until the 2000s, police the wilder actions at the state level, have withdrawn from that business. And so I talk in the, in the book about how do you restore some of the concepts of the civil rights era in ways that are feasible, not too radical, not too, that doesn't, don't require huge change, but how do you get a new Voting Rights Act that would make sense in the post-civil rights era? When the Supreme Court struck down the key sections of the Voting Rights Act in 2013, they made a good point, which is the Voting Rights Act held a state or a town in suspicion according to things it had done in the 19th century. So 
Hawaii got special scrutiny under the Voting Rights Act, as it then was, and Wisconsin did not. By the year 2013, Hawaii was a very good actor for voting rights, and Wisconsin is the the worst actor north of the Mason-Dixon line. And it's just weird that you would say, okay, Wisconsin gets an easy ride because of what happened in the 19th century. So agree, the court was right. You need to rewrite this thing. But then having struck down the key sections, nothing happened. And so states are now free to do whatever they want. And what, what, because of the Republican success in the elections of 2010, which were immediately followed by the census of 2010 and the re- redistricting of 2011 in the throes of the terrible aftermath of the Great Recession, they built a, an especially reactionary set of state and federal maps that disempowered everywhere in America where new products are invented, where songs are written, where science is done. And I, ta- I, I compare, and so I talk about this, about how all the productive parts of the country are systematically disenfranchised. And that's, you know, for, if, if you want, from a Republican point of view, if you want the Republican Party ever again to be the party of enterprise, it has to get out of the business of being the party of the, of the deindustrializing and places where coal used to be mined and reconnect with where the future is happening. Hmm. Trumpocalypse is full of ideas for making the political system more responsive to the country. That's one of the ways that you protect the country against future Donald Trumps. I mean, let's remember, he got 46% of the vote. He got barely more of the vote than Michael Dukakis in 1988 and a lot less of the vote than Mitt Romney and Al Gore and John Kerry. And Hmm. if you bring the political system into harmony with the country, the biggest beneficiary of that will be the Republican Party itself because you will take away from the party the option of defending enterprise by appealing to the most disaffected parts of the country. So how sinister do you think this actually is behind closed doors? I mean, when you talk about you know, a reactionary attempt to gerrymander and suppress voting rights. You know, like you, you take an article that would be written in a place like The Nation, you know, or, you know, Rachel Maddow's take on just how dark this gets behind closed doors. I mean, how off the mark, if at all, is that? I mean, when, when Mitch McConnell is talking to whoever, I don't know, back in the day, Paul Ryan, about just how to win, stay on this point of suppressing votes or managing to shore up support for Republican candidates in ways that anywhere left of center just seems illegitimate. How nefarious is what in fact is true? The right to vote has always been bitterly contested in the United States. At a certain period in history, we we learned a happy story of the ever-spreading progress toward the vote, toward ever greater democracy. And it's inscribed in the great amendments of the Constitution, the 13th Amendment ending slavery, the the 14th Amendment extending civil rights without regard to race, the 15th Amendment extending the right to vote without regard to race, and through votes for women and through the extension of the vote to the District of Columbia and to 18-year-olds, and up, 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 up. But that's not how it happened. It was always going forward and going backward. It has always been through American history a familiar tool of politics to try to prevent your opponents from having the right to vote. And to this day, the United States has the weakest constitutional protections of voting rights of any of the democratic countries, partly because the Constitution is so old and so much of it was written before Mm -hmm. Americans agreed that everybody should vote. And so 
one of the things I talk, I, I think we need to make, and this may be the service Donald Trump has done us. I, I think it is not impossible that we will look back and say, that was a very upsetting experience, but it actually put us back on the right footing because Donald Trump made explicit and made kind of cheaply corrupt a lot of things that were already, that were going wrong in the country without him. And so we need to commit ourselves to say, you know what? We're a democracy. We all, we all think we are. I mean, sometimes you'll hear Republicans say, it's not a democracy, it's a republic. I think a lot of people react to that was, I always thought it was a democracy. Didn't you think it was a democracy? And if it's not a democracy, shouldn't it be a democracy? So let's, let's be a democracy. And let's, let's say, you know, you, you get, you know, you can compete in all kinds of ways. You can find, you know, more appealing candidates with better resumes. You can ads on TV. I mean, no one, you can dig up dirt your opponent did when she was a college student. You got all of that. But what you can't do is compete by preventing people from voting. And what you certainly can't do is write voting systems where if you get 45% of the vote, you get 60, 60% mm. of the seats. We're not going to let you do that. That option is now off the table. And if Donald Trump helps us to do that and other things too, you know, Donald Trump has taught us how dang- the United States has compared to any other democracy, a super politicized system of law enforcement. There is no other democracy on earth where decisions about who to prosecute and who not to prosecute are made mm. by such political people as in the United States. We need to fix that. And Donald Trump has forced us to concentrate. I think we basically lived through a big tidying up of the American political system after Watergate and the related scandals in the 70s. And then those reforms have just been losing their impetus, losing their effectiveness over the past 20 years. I think we are going to need post-Trump kind of moment of reform like that, which we had just before the First World War, just after Watergate, really renew institutions and not just voting institutions, but those that enforce law, those that make uh, our social welfare systems work, and those that preserve the climate for, and, and the environment for future generations. Trump has definitely pressure-tested our political system and the, the rule of law to a degree that I think very few people anticipated. I, I think one surprising yeah. discovery is how much the sane functioning of government relies not on actual laws, but on political norms. Just, you know, you, you don't do yeah. that sort of thing, right? So it takes someone who has absolutely no political scruples to do that sort of thing to, for us to realize, oh, there's actually no wall there. There's no guardrail. There's nothing keeping us from the howling abyss if we move further in that direction. And, and Trump has exposed so much of that landscape. Um, I want to get into uh, some of these uh, up-to-the-minute controversies around you know, Barr and the so-called Flynn controversy. But before we jump into those details, uh, you, if I'm not mistaken, at least in the book, I, I don't know if anything's changed, you seem very confident that Trump will lose in November. Yeah. I really would like to share that confidence because you know, if for no other reason, I, would, I will sleep better at night. Why are you um, so cheerful on that point? Well, I, I thought he was probably going to lose even before the pandemic struck. And I, I think now in the face of just the terrible economic distress that has been visited on so many people, I just don't think incumbent presidents survive that. The highest unemployment of any, inco- any incumbent president who didn't actually lose face was Barack Obama in 2012, and he had unemployment a little above 7%. And in second place was, was Ronald Reagan in 1984, who had, again, employment somewhat lower than Obama in 2012, also above 7%. But in both cases, there had been tremendous improvement in the 12 months before the election, slow improvement in the case of Obama, which is 
why he had a fairly narrow re-election and massive improvement in the case of Ronald Reagan. But there is just no way that in the November of this year, we're not going to have unemployment well above 10% and with no obvious near-term dramatic improvement in sight. And so, but I think one of the things that is, when you say, I want to sleep at night, the promise of the American election and political system was it, you didn't have to depend on one person or the other winning the election. I quote in the book a column, I won't name the columnist because, because the point of this column was it was how typical it was. It was written just a few days before the election of 2016. And it's the kind of column you write when you have to file before the election, but it's going to be published after the election. And so this columnist wrote a column that's headlined, whoever wins will be fine. And then it went through all the things that you normally believe, you know, that uh, the checks and balances and the Department of Justice and two great political parties. And as optimistic as I am about many things in American culture, on this question, I'm, I, my verdict and that of the book is the institutions failed. Donald Trump didn't get everything he wanted, but the things that back in 2016 an optimistic person would have predicted would check him, they all failed. And not just the Department of Justice, but, but so many others. And he, as I said, he, he didn't always prevail, but he kept going. And just on the day you and I are recording, he is threatening states that proceed with absentee vote voting, as so many states do, Michigan and Nevada, which are Nevada state he hopes to win and Michigan a state he can't afford to lose. He's threatening them with, with, with withholding federal funds, disaster relief in the case of Michigan, which is having a terrible flood as you and I speak. Now, Maybe that will happen, maybe not. But the idea that he would ever relent, he just keeps going and going, and the institutions do not prevent him. And we are left to the last institution, which is the ballot box. But the ballot box itself is so unfair in the United States that that is never supposed to be the only resort, but only the last resort. Well, let me see if I can channel uh, a Trumpian skeptic here. What would you say to the person who says in the face of this now, we, we, we haven't spelled it out yet, but the promised criticism of the Trump years thus far, that, listen, his job was to drain the swamp. Politics, as usual, was clearly broken. The Chinese have been screwing us for as long as anyone can remember. We won the Cold War, and concern about Russia is just fatuous. Our allies have been free-riding on our largesse since the, the UN was formed. We've been getting screwed on the world stage, and Trump is a brilliant businessman and brilliant negotiator who, yeah, he's rough around the edges, and he's the bull in a china shop, but we needed that, and far from breaking anything that was precious, he's shaken things up, and now people understand that they have to deal with us more or less on our terms. And you know, so something like MAGA has been achieved, and Trump is obviously not responsible for this damn virus. That's the Chinese, if, if anyone, are responsible for it. Whether they were meddling with this in a lab or they were eating bats, they have to get their shit together, and we're right to be putting the onus on them. All of this hysteria about Trump and about the virus, frankly, is just a left-wing media confection which is incentivized by some of the very you know, bad business models you and I just referenced, right? They're all after clicks and eyeballs and seeking a, a, an ever-diminishing slice of a diminishing ad revenue pie. So nothing really has been lost, and we're fine. What are you worried about? Let me talk about China. 
when I served in the Bush administration, and it wasn't that long ago, by most counts, the American economy was about three times the size of the Chinese economy. Today, depending on who's counting, the Chinese economy is approximately equal to that of the United States, maybe a little smaller, possibly even a little bit bigger. The days in which the United States could dictate to China, if they ever existed, are over. So Donald Trump's whole vision of the world is based on a fantasy. The United, the China is just too big to bully. And in fact, Donald Trump as president understood that because he, he didn't bully them. He, he suck up to them in all kinds of ways. And that's one of the reasons that we have this, that, that the virus was allowed to gather in the way that it did. Why did Donald Trump dismantle the U.S. Press, independent U.S. health presence inside China? We don't know the answer to that, but the way it looks to me is he got himself into this trade war with China in 2017 or 2018, and he, and he rapidly realized he was losing, and he was going to lose the election because of it. He desperately needed a trade deal. And it looks like one of the Chinese terms for get, giving them the trade deal to save his election, because they didn't face an election in 2020. They don't care whether the deal happens in 2020 or 2021 or 2022, but he did. I said, get your people out. Rely on us. And he self-blinded the United States. If the United States, China, I agree with that line of criticism. China is a very dangerous and difficult actor on the world stage. When you had a dangerous and difficult actor who's as big as you, and when you mm. want not to fight them, but to make them be better, you have to have partners. Yeah. And the great thing about the American system, the reason the United States beat the Soviet Union was not because the United States beat the Soviet Union. The United States, at the top of the, in the middle 80s, the United States plus its friends accounted for half of the output of the entire planet. That weight is what crushed the Soviet Union. The United States has potential friends, our old partners in NATO, Canada and Australia and, and, and the Pacific, the Australians, the Japanese, uh, new friends, including uh, probably Vietnam, India. The United States could put together a coalition big enough to constrain China's bad behavior and entice China to bigger behavior. But because Donald Trump's model of how is, is an, an authoritarian one and a dictatorial one, because his relationship was one of dominator be dominating, that's the vision of American power that he has. But the problem is the United States is not strong enough and China is too big for that to work. So instead, one of the most important legacies of the United States is he has weakened the country and left us defenseless against the Chinese because he has alienated all the partners we are going to need to impose our will on the United States, on, on the Chinese, I beg your pardon. And one reason that he has alienated those partners, and that goes back to the very first thing you said about the drain swamp, is the, very, is the core, the central reality of Donald Trump is that he's a crook. And the most corrupt president, the most corrupt individual ever to be president, running the most corrupt presidential administration in modern times in ways big and in ways small. And because of the, the importance of the flow of money from foreign countries to him and to his friends, including from China, he's never been, he can't, the countries, the countries you want to partner with are the countries that can't pay, pay bribes. You know, you can raise a lot of money. You can earn an, a dishonest dollar in Azerbaijan. Much harder to do that in Germany. One of the great losses here has been, from my point of view, I mean, forget about the domestic situation, which is its own problem, but just our influence in the world. I mean, I just we are the laughingstock of the world on some level, you know, feared increasingly by our erstwhile allies and laughed at by our genuine adversaries. And so it's hard to quantify what that loss is. But when you look at global problems that we should be if not leading the charge on in a collaborative role with whoever's going to conspire to solve these problems, you know, whether you're talking about the pandemic and future pandemics or climate change or 
stabilizing a, a global economy, or, you know, as you say, containing China, which I do perceive in a way similar to you. That's been an immense loss. And that's one of the things that worries me most about the prospect of four more years of Trump, just what it will mean for us to double down on this mistake. Obviously, we should have known who he was. I think you and I did know who he was in 2016, but obviously nearly half the country didn't. But to double down on him now, given the toxicity, you know, just I mean, he's literally poisoning the air we breathe, you know, to just cite his influence on any sane approach to environmentalism and, and you know, his gutting of the EPA and his disavowal of all the re relevant science there. I mean, this is not to say that there aren't economic questions about how we deal with climate change or environmental pollution or you know, keeping mercury out of the air and water, but we need a sane administration to do that. What do you, I know, again, you're, you're sanguine about this, and I want, to, I want to land with you there, but before we get to that happy place, what would it mean to double down on Trump in November? Should he be reelected? You're choosing a future of economic protectionism, rising trade barriers, and thus of great difficulty in getting any kind of economic recovery from the present slump. You're choosing a world in which America is no longer trusted and admired by partners, in which the United States is increasingly alone in the room, and alone in a room in which its rival is a country as rich, I mean, not as high a standard of living, obviously, but as collectively rich, as powerful as itself, and as technologically competent, almost, as the United States. You're choosing a future in which the political system is, although, of course, Trump's not going to abolish elections or anything like that, but, but in which elections are decreasingly fair and in which Congress is, has lost its power to oversee the presidency and in which the courts are increasingly an arm of a political party. And so when Congress does challenge the president, when it sends a subpoena and the president ignores it, Congress goes to a court where a Trump judge says subpoenas used to be compulsory, now they're optional. And that is some, a, a trend we're on. It means a country in which we have a de facto racial caste system. And this is something that Donald Trump makes clear all the time. The way that Donald Trump imagines, who's the most consistently unpopular first-term president in the history of polling, but he imagines himself to be the leader of this great national movement because, in his mind, there are people who hold American passports who aren't really Americans. If they live in the wrong place, or they have the wrong color of skin, or they have the wrong cultural attitudes, they are not that, that some Americans are more American than others. And the political and cultural and economic system are being shaped to give those first-class Americans in Trump's world way more advantages, political and economic, than, than others. I, I think we are heading toward tremendous social strife. The United States has signed up for the immigration that the United States took after 1970 is here. And even if immigration were to stop tomorrow, and I am an advocate of a slower rate of immigration than we've had in the recent past, but even if it were to stop cold tomorrow, zero, all you're doing is moving by four or five years, the date of the, of the cultural transformations that are coming. And the people whom Donald Trump treats as inadequate Americans or unreal Americans or Americans who can be abused and in some cases even murdered outright, there's going to be a reckoning. The genius of America has always been its ability to take many different kinds of people and create a sense of commonality among them. And one of the things that Trump is about is jettisoning that idea and, and saying, it isn't that you're all going to become one thing. It's that you're, we are going to become a nation of degrees and castes where some people are just superior to others. And the people at the bottom who may have all kinds of skills and even money, they have to accept a secondary place. And that's not stable. 
But ironically, David, it seems that Trumpism is in large part a symptom of that kind of caste-like stratification of society run the other direction. I mean, we have this, the coastal elites, right, the people who are overeducated, who, who on the basis of their zip code, we can tell you, you know, what they watch on Netflix and whether they, they drive a Tesla or aspire to drive a Tesla. It's just that they're the people who, for the most part, were blindsided by the fact that it was even possible for Trump to be elected. You know, I, I count myself squarely in the, in the center of this herd. These are the people against whom a kind of class-based resentment has formed to give us Trump in the first place. However you look at it, we have this problem of class in America. And a class, I mean, money is one aspect of it, but it's actually not a perfect reporter of it because, as has been pointed out, I think the median income for a Trump supporter is something like $72,000 a year. So it's not like the poorest people in society were voting for Trump. But there is a class in America has become about, there are many other cultural touchstones to it. And it's the urban-rural divide, which we've talked about. How do you see class as operating in this space? Well, class is only one of the many divisions in American life. And as you say, rural-urban, one that worries me a lot is the separation between sexes. I think that's one of the things that empowers Donald Trump. You've never had so many people under 30 living apart, men from women. Mm. I think it's now true that, a, that an American under 30 is more likely to live with his or her parents than to live with a husband or wife. And a, an absolute majority of Americans under 30 are unpartnered in any way, married or non-married. So that, that breeds a lot of mistrust between men and women, and that has political effect. But to your point about these, these zip codes and these classes, you know, I'm a pretty conservative person, and in most ways, I endorse the conservative analysis of American society. But I, I think there's one thing that the left really does get right. That, that the left-right argument over class is, an argument, is this argument. Which is more salient to American life? The, the right says the most important fact about American life is that the top 20% have cultural behaviors and practices and entertainment patterns that are different from the not, the, everybody else. They like electric cars, the other people don't. They eat healthy food, the other people don't. The left analysis is, you know, the really striking thing about American life is we have about 100 people in this country who can afford to hire their own army. Hmm. We have people who are rich enough to fund an entire crash vaccine program, and God bless the people who do that. But we have got an accumulation of wealth that forms itself political power. The founders of this country, especially John Adams, weren't. Concentrated wealth is concentrated power. And Teddy Roosevelt, a great Republican, seconded that view. That the, uh, and that, that the question of what is the problem? Is it that university presidents today lead fancier lives than university presidents did 20 years ago? Or is the problem that you have 100 people who can buy an election themselves? Is it uh, who, can buy, who can buy the entire Senate? And I, I think the second is what worries me more. And again, I'm with Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt, at a similar moment, or actually, there's never been a moment as, where the wealth concentration was as extreme as this, but where the country was heading toward it, said, the reformer is not a socialist. The reformer is the antidote to socialism. If you want to avoid socialism, the, the premise of American life has always been that we would separate wealth from political. You could be rich, but you, you, no one would be rich enough to buy the government. But now we have people who are rich enough to buy the government. Yeah, although we've obviously 
dissected the limits of that, right? Because look at Bloomberg. I mean, Bloomberg was, he's as rich as nearly anyone alive. I mean, he functionally has infinite resources when you take what's required to actually message against another political opponent. And he couldn't even secure the Democratic candidacy. But you don't have to buy the it's a very, it was very vain of Bloomberg and very wasteful. I mean, if, if you're giving good advice to a, a billionaire friend, don't buy the election. Buy the person who wins the election. Hmm. That's way less expensive. And, and by the way, and then you can build a diversified portfolio. I mean, your chance of, you know, winning the Democratic nomination, what is that? But, you know, you can see it in the way, in the way the priorities of the country get shifted. And one of the things I talk a lot about in the book is America's healthcare problem, suddenly very much to the fore. So the United States spends about a sixth of its national income on healthcare, heading toward a fifth, by far more than anybody else. And we don't, you know, yes, at the cutting edge of science, American science, uh, medicine can do amazing things, but day in, day out, for most people, the American medical experience is not better than the Swiss or the French or the German. And in many ways, it's, it's worse. And it certainly comes with levels of anxiety that those systems don't have. So why? Why do we do that? And because at every try to fix it, there are someone who, there are institutions that have enough resource cost at, at a concentrated point to V change. Hmm. And so everyone in the American healthcare system gets paid more than their counterparts elsewhere in the world. And the higher up in the system you go, the more extreme the disparity is. And so the system kind of ossifies and calcifies that, you know, one of the things that people like me were raised to believe is that point of property and enterprise is to make your society more dynamic. But we're watching in the United States self-employment levels decline. We're watching levels of innovation decline. We're, in every way you can measure, the American economy of today is less competitive, more monopolized than the American economy of the 1990s. And that the state, which is supposed to set the rules, is simply, it's, it's not that somebody buys it to do things. They buy the state to prevent the state from doing things. But now how is that concerning me? You just cited the compensation that goes to people in, in the medical field, you know, doctors and others, how is that not analogous to caring more about university presidents getting rich than it is caring about the top 100 families that can... Because at the, because at the very zenith of this healthcare system are people who are healthcare entrepreneurs, like the, the present senator from Florida, Rick, Rick Scott, who made $700 million out of, out of a healthcare company. And, and look, if you are... If, if these were Sam Walton's, if the way you made $700 million out of healthcare was by ruthlessly driving down the price of everything and providing a better product for cheaper, then I salute your $700 million. Mm. Thank you very much. But if you make your $700 million by overbilling the government, suppressing competition, buying off audits, and, and charging ever more for, the same, for essentially the same service, then you begin to look like a not a driver of productive change, but like a parasite on a political system that is losing its ability to respond to challenges. Yeah, that's a good distinction. Okay, so back to the election and to the, um, the kinds of controversies and pseudo-controversies that are getting coughed up by um, the process for, for our delectation. What are your concerns about Biden at this point? I mean, I am, it's actually no exaggeration to say I would vote for any randomly selected person on earth over Trump at this point. I mean, just, I, I need no information about the candidate. Yeah. Uh, they don't even have to be sentient. They just would need to be somehow a, a person around which a competent administration could form 
and I, I think Biden is certainly that, but there are obviously significant concerns about his ability to function as a candidate right now. I mean, the, the pandemic is not working to his advantage. He's basically on a Zoom call while the president is out there doing his press conferences at a whim. And Biden is, has all of his glitches with respect to his speech, and he has a, a Me Too allegation. What are your thoughts about how Biden survives the next six months? Well, the, the slogan, my personal campaign slogan for Biden is Biden 2020, he'll do. And he'll do, he'll be fine. Yeah, like he's, he'll be fine. And the best thing I can say about him is that Biden has, and I've, like everyone in Washington, I've, you've, you've come into contact with him and his people a lot over, I've been here now since the middle 90s. He's always had remarkably good people around him and people who are more importantly in politics for the right reason. Mm. Whereas Trump is just a magnet for people who are in politics for the worst possible reasons. And I, I've never decided whether I'm more worried about the fanatics or the crooks, but it's, it's sort of like, it's one or the other. Mm-hmm. Actually, no, fanatics, crooks, and incompetence. That's, that's the Trump team. And so if there right. are people who are honest, <laughs> the honest people are, are usually, anyway. The, the honest so, people so, are fanatics. Yeah, the honest people are fanatics and the, uh, the, the crooked people, anyway, the yeah. crook, and the crooked people are often managed to be incompetent too. So he'll do, he'll do fine. Uh, and I think the thing that I, look to him for is we need to move to the next era of American politics. Right. But I guess I'm not worried that, that he might not be fine as president. I'm, I'm ecstatic over the prospect that, that he and the kinds of people he'll attract into his orbit will, will be running the country yeah. next year. I'm worried, about he, I'm worried about the campaign, the debates, if, yes. if something like that happens, and the actual election. How do you, how do you think about that? Okay, so so my, my basic model of elections is when there's an incumbent president on the ballot, it takes the, the incumbent president for good or ill is the issue. You know, so in 1984, Ronald Reagan ran for re-election, And although the economy had been very shaky in 81, 82, and even in the early part of 83, in the second half of 83, the economy took off like a rocket. It was morning in America. And it didn't matter who ran against Ronald Reagan. He was going to win. When the incumbent is failing for one reason or another, then it takes a lot. The one exception to this rule is, is 2004 where George W. Bush did succeed in making the election about John Kerry. And that took extraordinary work by the Bush campaign, and it took a lot of mistakes by the Kerry campaign to agree to make the issue John Kerry. Mm. But normally, it's just not the issue. So I think the, the issue, there's going to be one issue in this election, which is the economy is, I mean, we will, I hope by November, the worst of the pandemic will be behind us, but we will still be in the throes of the worst of the recession. And the fact that this was so preventable. It didn't have to be anything like this bad. And it will have gone, it will be so grindingly wearisome by November. I mean, it's the pain of it. It's still a a fresh hurt right now uh, for the people who've lost lost their jobs in March and April and the people who will be losing their businesses in May and June. But in November, it'll just be grinding. Hmm. What about the prospect that the the stock market may be still executing some of its delusional leaps up toward previous highs, or at least good numbers. I mean, it's, it seems well, just un, uncoupled from the economy at large. Couldn't Trump successfully use that to advertise a good economy that still millions of people will know is a fiction, but might not know it enough to coordinate a political response? It'll seem like a mockery to the vast majority of Americans who have no significant amount of money in the stock market. Hmm. You know, one of the things I think it's always important to keep in mind about Donald Trump is he sort of fluked into presidency in, in 2016. He's not actually 
uh, he's, he's very good at internal conservative politics, but he's not that good at national, national broadcast politics. He, got, uh, he had a, a series of things that broke his way, including an incredibly efficient distribution of his, of, of his electoral vote. But he just needs everything to work perfectly for him to repeat that trick. And if it doesn't work perfectly, then he's going to lose, and he could possibly lose very big. And so it's a sign of like, not understanding the limited importance of the stock market as an economic tool is one of the things that is really wrong with him. I mean, he, he traded weeks where he could have acted against the virus in pursuit of a trade deal with a view to boosting the stock market in January, as, it, as he succeeded in doing, thinking that that was going to be his election-winning argument and not understanding that it just wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. What, but what about the pollution of our information space here, though? Well, you, you have people, I mean, this, again, this could be more, the lesson here might be that Twitter isn't real life, but I mean, Twitter is, has proven itself to me. They, you know, I view his presidency on some level as a, as, as a product of social media, so suddenly re, you know, revealing that it is real life. You know, there are people, very prominent people on social media who spread conspiracy theories around the pandemic that's like the death figures are totally exaggerated, right? That the states are gaming the federal government by lying about how many people are dying from COVID-19. And, you know, so that you can't even trust these numbers. There's this basically almost nobody has died from this this virus and they're they're all in in old age homes anyway and it just seems to me that the level of conspiracy thinking that has already been achieved and w- which if Trump really puts his shoulder to the wheel as November approaches just could be amplified to an insane degree what's amazing is that he has basically taken all sides of this issue i mean he, this initially was a hoax then it became super serious and he was he was paying lip service to the idea that millions of people could die, right? So he, he left his supporters who were, who were stuck on the hoax meme completely in the cold when he started to take it seriously. But given that there's absolutely no burden on him being coherent, even within the span of five minutes, much less five months, he could pivot back to it all was a hoax, right? This was another attempted coup. There've only been 5,000 COVID deaths, right? He, he, I think he's fully capable of being that insane in October. So do you, do you think that gives any scope to a possible election victory? At any given moment, only about half the population of the United States can name the vice president of the United States. Right. So voter, voter ignorance is a real thing. But you know, there's one subject on which every voter is the world's leading authority. And that is, how am I personally, Mr. or Ms. Voter, doing as compared to how I was doing six months ago? Mm-hmm. You cannot fool them on that point. So I think one of the reasons the president is so determined to deny the pandemic is the president is right that if this pandemic had not had an economic effect, he could probably lie his way out of it. There's a very haunting line by a Harvard professor, Maya San, I quoted on, uh, on Twitter a little while ago, that anyone who doubts the ability of American politics to ignore large and continuing numbers of preventable deaths has not been following the gun debate. If Everyone were in work right now, but 100,000 or 200,000 of our fellow citizens had died unnecessarily because of Trump's incompetence. Yeah, he could try to BS his way through that. Mm. But you can't BS your way through 15% unemployment. You can't BS your way through the tsunami of business bankruptcies that is now working its way through the system. What if you attribute that unemployment and those bankruptcies to the overreaction of 
the libtard governors. The lockdown was forced upon us by the panic of the left. You know, I tried to hold the line, but got gamed. But now I, you know, I, I brought everyone out as quickly as possible, and the economy is going to reset here. It's just the people who, who, who stole your jobs were the lefties who were panicked by this Chinese flu. Yeah, well, you can try that. I would, I would say that the argument, the reason you were out of work is because I was too weak and frightened to stop CNN from taking your job away. Is that, that's, not, that's not the Donald Trump that the people who like him thought they were getting. They thought they right. were getting a guy who was strong enough to defy CNN and all the libtards. That there, there is, you know, there's, there's a scene in, in uh, the movie Argo that I think is, this is one of my favorite scenes about politics. That, that the movie Argo is about Americans held hostage in Iran. Mm. And there's a team that is coming up with a, a, a plan to liberate the hostages, and they present the plan to the sec director of operations at the CIA, and he hears the plan, and his eyes rolls, and he's saying, this, the, this plan is terrible. And the agents have come up with a plan, say, yes, sir, it is. Say, have you gotten anything else? No, sir, this is the best terrible plan we've got. Right, right. And that is, like, if Donald Trump had good arguments, he would use them. So of course, you know, it, you can try that it's all a conspiracy. They rolled me. I got fooled. It's not my fault. Don't blame me. Sorry about your company. Sorry about your job. Sorry about your savings. But, and if times were better, you might be able to move just enough of the people. But the number of people you have to move. And I think there's just all kinds of poll information that he, he's also offended too many different kinds of people. He's offended now enough college-educated men, the heartland of the Republican Party, to, to make the heartland of the Republican Party unreachable for him. He's alienating non-college white women. He's, he's lost much of his support. He had some support among Latino men in 2016. That's gone. They have been hit so hard by the economic shock. And black America, of course, has been ravaged by the suffering and loss of this disease. And, and Trump cannot forbear insulting and offending them all the time. It's just, it's just too many problems. And when you look at his electoral map, given, I mean, he's telling us, on Twitter on the day that you and I speak, that he thinks he's going to lose Michigan. Well, mm. if he loses Michigan, he cannot afford anything else to go wrong, and everything else is going wrong. Okay, well, I'm feeling better, David. That's, this is better than coffee. <laughs> but, but, but it's not over. But the point is, and this is, I think, the, the central claim of, of the book, is removing Donald Trump from office will not move you to a stable, workable, liberal democracy open to the world, leading the world. That's not enough because Donald Trump was ultimately an opportunistic infection and the underlying body politic is still mm -hmm. vulnerable. So our job post-Trump is not to focus on this politician or that president, politician or you know, Biden's quirks or who's going to have this job. It's how do we have a project like that after Watergate, like that before the First World War, to make American democracy work for America in the 21st century and, not, and, and to put us past these Ancient, ancient culture wars. There's, there's a story, there's another story I cherish. It's late 1950s and the, the names of the people don't matter. And a, an enthusiastic young Marxist has emerged from university and is sitting down for dinner with actually one of the founders of the American Communist Party, who's of course no longer a communist. And the enthusiastic young Marxist is hectoring this ancient communist with Marxism. And finally, the ancient communist says, your answers are so old that I have forgotten the questions. Mm. And I think a lot of people say, listen to Fox News. What are you people talking about? Can we talk about my life just once? Just bring me up to speed on what we should think about the Flynn controversy and what Barr is up to. 
the Flynn controversy is bigger than the Flynn case and bigger than Flynn. I, I think Flynn himself is sort of a sad story. Flynn was a very gallant officer in the Iraq war, did really good work there, got promoted to be head of the Defense Intelligence Agency as a result, and that job was just too much for him. He flamed out of it and was fired after a quite a successful career. It was the first big repudiation, and that experience made him very bitter. It also made him economically vulnerable, and he fell in with a lot of bottom-feeding, dirty schemes. He also fell in with the Trump campaign. Meanwhile, the Trump campaign, and that's, I think, the real center of the story, was engaged, was being supported through the 2016 campaign by this clandestine effort by Russia. However, that got started. That effort was clearly welcomed by the Trump campaign. Which is not the same thing as alleging formal collusion, which obviously everyone in Trump's camp thinks was emphatically disproven by the Mueller report. And yeah, I mean, but Barr's whitewashing of the Mueller report has succeeded in being memified in Trumpistan such that we're dealing with people who believe that Trump was completely exonerated of every conceivable yeah. crime, obstruction of justice being one. So that's what we're, we're messaging against here. What, what do you want to say? I, I, I have never been interested in the part of the Trump story that is about crimes. I have been saying, again, I've said this so many times on, since 2017, that the worst things that happened in the campaign of 2016 mm. were legal. They were not right. crimes. It is not crime for an it is not a crime for an American citizen to owe a lot of money to Russian business people. It is not a crime for an American citizen to try to ingratiate himself with Russian business people in order to get more money. And it, it's not a crime for you to enjoy it when your rival is damaged by a hack. And it's it's not a crime to wish on TV that more such hacks would continue. None of those things are crimes, but they present a huge national security challenge. So. I, this question of collusion, was there ever formal communication between uh, the Russians and Trump? Who knows? That, that's, I think, a, a big question mark. There's a lot of thought that's still mysterious. Did Russia help Trump? Yes. Did Trump welcome him help? Yes. Was that help very important in an election decided by 80,000 votes in three states? Yes. Did Trump do everything in his power to thwart investigation of that help? Yes. Then poor old Michael Flynn, who's washed out of the biggest job he ever had, he is trying to find his way in Trump world and in either anticipating what Trump wanted or obeying some order from Donald Trump. He then got himself into a bad situation. And once he realized he was in a bad situation, he lied to the FBI. So I, I don't see Flynn as, a, as some kind of master villain. I see him as, as in many ways, a, a sad story of a good military career gone wrong at the mm -hmm. end. I am happy that he will not go to prison. But did he do wrong? He, he did wrong. You see, a victim, he is certainly not a victim. But his story is important only to the extent that it shows, sheds light on what the real narrative, which is what exactly was the connection between Trump and Russia? Why was Trump, through the campaign of 2016, giving interviews to the New York Times in which he said, I want out of NATO. Yes, I would abandon Estonia. Was he, what, was he trying to communicate something? You know, collusion in the movies, it happens where two people meet in the park, under the tree, under the shadow of the light, and they exchange, you know, they pull down the fedoras and they mutter to each other. But you're no less communicating if you do it on Broadway. If you put up a billboard on, mm. on Broadway and say, you know, yes, Jim, I love you too. Your proposal is accepted. <laughs> it's, you're just as engaged as if you do it mm. in secret. Okay, so before we bring this into the end zone and talk about how we might move forward once Trump is the former president of the United States, 
What about the prospect, you know, albeit the fairly paranoid one, or at least you would assume it, it would be paranoid, that if he loses, he on some level won't leave, or he'll, he'll declare the election illegitimate, or there'll be so much chaos provoked by, you know, his messaging in that vein to some degree. Even if he leaves, you'll have, you know, the 30% diehards in this country who one must assume own a disproportionate number of the guns, just destabilized yeah. by conspiracy theories and general political madness that will be in, in new territory as, as far as a loss of social cohesion. No, you, you raise a real worry. Look, the, the moment of, there are two moments of danger after the election, assuming Donald Trump lose, loses. There is, from, from the time the popular votes are cast until the Electoral College meets and cast its vote. And I think that's the middle of December. There's a ceremony where they're actually, this is actually people who gather in a place and they cast their votes and their votes are registered and they're overseen by the incumbent vice president. Once the electoral college vote is registered, if Trump tries to hold on to power after that point, then he's, he's outside the law. And he will discover he just can't do it. Nobody will listen to him. On midday, on inauguration day, Biden will be the president. And if Trump has not moved out of the White House, the White House ushers will pack his things, put him in suitcases and put them on the sidewalk. And even if Biden can't literally move, if Trump tries to prevent Biden from moving into the White House on that day, Biden will still be president wherever he is. And everybody, and the, you know, the whole, all the instrumentalities of power will be there. So the moment of danger is that moment from voting day till the middle of December, when Trump will try to somehow thwart, if it's close, try to thwart the meeting of the Electoral College. But there's another line of danger, which I think, gets too little attention, which is that they just try to steal everything that isn't nailed down. Now, Trump starts issuing pardons. And then there's the question of, can the president pardon himself, which is, has been debated by law professors for a long time without any, leading to any clear answer. And we may be in a world where Trump is with us. And of course, there are the Trump scandals that will, many of which will be coming to light in 2021, and the, and the debate about what does the country do about them? You know, does it somehow pull a veil over the past, or does it try to send a message about what behavior is acceptable in a president and what is not? Mm. Yeah, well, on that larger point of, of a, a reckoning with the last four years, should we be so lucky as to bring these four years to an end in November, what do you think about that? It's almost like, I mean, I was sort of half joking, I, I did a podcast with Andrew Yang, and I said, it seems like we're going to need truth and reconciliation commissions to process the toxicity of what Trump's enablers enabled, right? I mean, just these, these otherwise normal Republicans who one would have thought had real careers and real reputations to worry about, the degree to which they enabled this mad boy king and his personality cult and fell into line. I mean, the people, the Mitch McConnells of the world, it's so despicable. And how do we put this behind us once it's as a matter of an election behind us? Well, let's separate the law from the politics. The first thing is this project, the Trump project, has to be seen not to work. And not, not to work a little, but not to work a lot. So a decisive political defeat for not only Trump, but for every federal Republican and the loss of the Senate, that sends a message to Republicans, so this didn't work. This was, this was a terrible mistake. And then political reforms that Take it off the table that you can use 45% of the vote to gain 60% of the seats in the Wisconsin state legislature. Just that's not going to do that. Do you want to 
govern Wisconsin, win more seats by gaining more votes. That's the rule in a democracy. So those political changes are independent of Trump and bigger than Trump. Then I, I think there are things where, you know, we have to set some rules of law. We need to re one of the things that Trump really successfully did was defeat the oversight powers of Congress. Mm. And we are going to, and that is, a, that is an, an issue that is coming before the Supreme Court. They're probably going to avoid, find, look for a way to avoid deciding that before the election. We're going to have to make clear what congressional oversight means and that, yes, you do have to answer questions from a congressional committee, even if it's chaired by the other party. And even if like Mike, Mike Pompeo, you think that the people on the other party aren't as smart and good looking as you. Then there are the individual sleazy cases I think probably some of which will be worth going after, some of which won't. And then much of it will be private litigation. I mean, he's going to end himself expose things like the people were suing him for his multi-level marketing schemes. That, that case will go ahead. Vice President Biden has said he will not issue a pardon to Trump, but I don't think he'll wait for it. I think then we'll also all be consumed with this question. I, I expect if Trump loses decisively that he will try to pardon himself. And we will have a huge national debate about whether that is binding or not. Right. It just seems ridiculous. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not a, a constitutional scholar, so I don't know why this is such a hard call. But it seems bizarre that this would seem like a, a rational use of the pardon power, that it would extend to oneself. I, mean, I don't even know what the argument for that would be. Is it, is it just that it hasn't been, that loophole hasn't been explicitly closed and therefore it might exist? Or is there some reason why it should be possible, ethically speaking? Well, ethically speaking, right. you win. I just view our laws as, as on, on some level, derivative of, of our ethics or our, you know, our proto-ethics. It's like the reason why we have laws in the first place is to safeguard human well-being on, on some level. And so the idea that the very person whose judgment is in question can exercise that judgment to absolve himself of of any further penalty, it just seems like, again, some kind of reductio ad absurdum of the thing we're talking about. Well, I mean, I think that's a very compelling perspective, and I, I want to agree with it, and I hope it's what prevails. The pardon power is a very ancient one. It it's, it's pre-exists the U.S. Constitution, along England, and was taken into the Constitution. The presidents and governors have had it. In, in a law, it has always been treated as absolute. And the test case is there, there was an instance in Tennessee in the 70s where the governor of the state was literally selling pardons to criminals. Mm. And the governor was caught, and the governor himself ultimately went to prison for this criminal scheme. But the courts treated those, those criminal pardons as valid mm. because they were formally, they were formally mm. legal. So even though they were the product of a crime, even though he was punished for the crime, the, that the pardons he sold, those were valid mm. pardons. So that would be the case that, that Trump would argue that this is, this, is not, this is one of those technical rules of law where the rule is the rule, even if it's stupid. I hope you mm. prevail. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> okay, so the last question on the election. Who do you think Biden should pick as his running mate? I remain a registered Republican, and so I am very careful about offering advice to people I'm in mm. coalition with, but who ultimately are not my people. I think when you're dealing with the oldest candidate for president in a time of a pandemic, the, that, the vice presidential choice just has to be someone who could do the job, every aspect of the job, starting on the first mm. day. Because you have to take the, the questions of illness and mortality very, very seriously, always seriously, but even more seriously with Biden than anybody else. So I wouldn't worry about geographic balance, and I, I wouldn't worry about tipping this state. I don't think there's much evidence that vice presidents are successful. You know, Bill Clinton picked Al Gore. He didn't mm. win Tennessee. Pick someone who can 
do the job immediately, especially the national security component. And Biden promised to choose a woman, so I think he's bound by that promise. So find a find someone with a national security credentials. I, I think Susan Rice is one person who could do the job. I'm sure there are many, many others. Hmm. Is she even being named as someone who's thought about in this context? I haven't, I haven't heard. Is that just your idea? Or? In my journalistic work, I, I bug the Biden people about a lot of things, but I don't, I don't talk hmm. to them about, uh, I bug them about trade and things like that, but I don't bug them about those kinds of internal political choices. Let me put it this way. Anyone who's in that room is not going to talk to me about it. Right. So I, I, I wanted to say something, which is, I think even for many of the people who listen to you who have supported Donald Trump, I think they have to feel this has been a more upsetting presidency mm. than normal. Even if you like the president or like many of the things he did, I mean, you do feel, you, you are aware of that he provokes a different kind of reaction than has been provoked by the presidents of the, of the recent past. And, and if you're a thinking person, you have to think that's based on something. How do we get past that? And one of the things I try to do in the book is, is the thing I think you try to do on this program, and the reason this program is so powerful, is to, let's just take, take the, the names off the issues, detribalize them. Just think about how are we going to get things done? And that's the, the project you invite people to join you in every day. David Cameron, when he was prime minister of Britain, said, politics should be more like the rest of life, where reasonable people find ways to work together despite their disagreements. I, I really think that could be possible. And I think we can come to the end of this whole Trump experience and say, you know what, the lesson is never mix tequila and quaaludes ever, right. ever right. again. We're over this, and it's time for something new. Well, let's end it there. That's good advice. If it's not politically actionable, we can take it literally, and we'll be better <laughs> off. As always, David, thank you for your time. It's great to have a man of your um, wide expertise on the program at this moment, because you, you bring such a wealth of experience and reference to this. I feel like uh, I got politically smarter over the last hour and a half plus. So thanks again. You make everybody better. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs>